Good morning. I'm preaching to you today from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. Perhaps a very well-known parable to you from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. You may know it as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm going to refer to it today as the recipe parable. But in order to better understand the importance of the parable that we find in Luke 18... Uh, I need to read first a few selections from Exodus and Leviticus. We'll go through those pretty quickly. I'll give you the references. We're going to do that. We're going to look at a few things from Exodus and Leviticus because if we approach this parable in Luke 18 with ignorance of the lessons that we learn there in the Old Testament, we can end up committing the same disastrous mistake that the Pharisee makes in this parable And that's very important that we avoid his mistake because his sin is the sin of blasphemy. There's a Pharisee in this story that we're about to read, and he acted and he spoke in ways that showed contempt for God's holiness. He was a blasphemous man. We're going to see that Jesus told this parable to people who trusted in themselves. He told this parable to people who were apparently very religious And he told this parable to them in order to show them that they were sacrilegious. It's a parable about taking something that's holy and polluting it. It's a parable about taking something that is so pure that God accepts it. But taking it, perverting it, defiling it, and then having the audacity to throw it back into God's face. Let me read to you a few selections. Here's the first one from Exodus chapter 30. I'll read to you verses, uh, we'll go through 1 through 10. This is a description of the incense offering. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns, that is the upper corner pieces, its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Let's stop there and notice that this is a square wooden box covered in gold. Uh, in some ways, it reflects the construction. It's similar to the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, but it's not, it's not the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Holy of Holies would have been the, the test, where the testimony was, the Ark of the Covenant there, the mercy seat lid, and inside of it, the Ten Commandments or the testimony. This would have been in the Holy of Holies. But right in front of that, the holy place, would have been the location for this altar, the altar of incense. Uh, if you were a priest and you were walking into that space, to your left would have been the seven-branched lampstand, to your right would have been the table of showbread, and then right in front of you, in front of the curtain, which separated you from the Ark of the Covenant, right there at that in front of you would have been this altar, the altar of burnt incense. This is what is being described here. Verse 7, 
Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. All right? The ones there to Aaron's left-hand side as he's going in. He shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your um, generation. So there's a morning and an evening or a late afternoon burning of this incense. We notice some of the details here. The incense offering was not to be made at just any old place. It was to be made upon the one and only incense offering and, and there only. This, uh, this altar, this space, it was hidden from view within uh, the curtained space of the holy place, which again was right in front of the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. There the mercy seat, there the symbolic throne of God. We notice in these details that the offering was to be made twice a day. Once in the morning, perhaps around 9, once later, perhaps around 3 in the afternoon. We notice that God specifies the place, He specifies the time, He specifies the person, because it was only the approved priest who was allowed to make the incense offering. Ceremony was strictly guarded by God's command. The people... Well, the priests were strictly forbidden from changing it. They were strictly forbidden from performing the ceremony in any other way. Now we note verse 9. It says, You shall not offer strange, that is to say, any unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And then we note that the altar of incense was to be um, it was to be kept clean, but not in the way you might suppose. It was to be kept clean. By God's very strict command, commandment here, this, is, this altar was to be kept clean, but it is to be maintained, it is to be cleaned, it is, it is to be kept pure by atonement. Notice what the text here tells us in verse 10. And... Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. This altar was to be kept clean, not by wiping it off, but by applying blood to it. And as the text tells us, this was to be done once a year. He shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now we move down to verse 34, Exodus chapter 30, verse 34. The Lord gives the recipe or the description of the incense itself. Verse 34, and the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. There's stacti, that's probably something similar to cinnamon. Very sweet, pleasant smelling. There is onica and galbanum. These are some kinds of sap or resin from certain kinds of plants extracted from them, dried. And pure frankincense with these sweet spices, there shall be equal amounts of each. So you imagine a quarter cup of this and a quarter cup of that and so on. Verse 35, you shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. 
But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. And so we notice the importance of treating this incense as separate. They were to treat this as sanctified, as set apart from any other compound or any other incense or any other perfume that might have been made and used, this was the other incense. If you had a family of them, this was the other perfume or incense. Nothing else like it. It was holy, and it was to be used as something only for the Lord. It was to be made only for this ceremony. And no other recipe could be used. We notice, as we just read there, that any unauthorized production or possession of this incense was pretty, not quite a death penalty, perhaps practically. It was to be punishable by excommunication from the covenant community. So it's very, very serious. And so we have covering the incense ceremony. We have, we have covering, we have this whole atmosphere of reverence. We have this whole re- atmosphere of admiration for holiness. We have this, this whole concept of separation from what is common, along with a, a trembling lest you transgress. This is, it's all over this ceremony. Now, you might be wondering at this point, um, as you heard, Aaron was supposed to burn it. You might be wondering, well, if the priest was supposed to burn the incense, how did he get it hot? How did he heat it up? I refer you to Leviticus chapter 16. Listen to this description. Leviticus 16, and I begin reading at verse 11, where it says, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, And shall kill the bull as the sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer set with some kind of a dish, some kind of a device designed to hold hot things, the hot coals. He'll take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, which is the out the bronze where the animals were killed or portions of them were burned, as you've just heard read earlier. Take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord. All right, so the priest would apply the incense to the hot embers, the burning hot coals, and this incense would begin to burn and it would produce a lot of smoke. But where would the priest find A hot coal. Would he find it from just any old fire that was burning? No. But only a coal from the fire which was burning outside outside of the holy place, only from that fire which had been built at the bronze altar, upon which portions of the sacrificial animals would have been burned and consumed. And so we note that there's no incense offering apart from sacrifice. We need to let that sink in, don't we? That's probably a rather important detail. There's no incense offering apart from 
sacrifice. There is, there would have been no sweet-smelling aroma of the burning spices without first the death of a substitutionary sacrifice. And yeah, I use the word substitutionary because the death of the bull, as we've already read, was in place of the death of Aaron and his house. Substitutionary sacrifice first before there would be any burning of the incense. The acceptable offering of incense was impossible without the shedding of blood. It was impossible without atonement. It was impossible without payment for sin, and the payment for sin was and has always been death. The entire ceremony here is teaching us of the holiness of God. The entire ceremony is teaching us of the sinfulness of people. Therefore, the offering must be made only according to God's command and not according to the sinner's imaginations and not according to the sinner's assumptions because God is holy and we are not. Now, I want you to notice one more thing about the ceremony and if you have any concept of your sinfulness and if you have any concept of God's holiness then you will find the next thing that I'm about to read from the scriptures, you'll find this to be most amazing. Perhaps you will be left speechless with astonishment with what I'm about to read. Verse 13 again, here in Leviticus. Verse 13 says, And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, so that... The cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. The priest would place the incense together with the hot coals and the smoke would begin to pour forth and it would fill the holy place first. But the smoke would then move into the holy of holies and it would cover the ark. It would cover the mercy seat. It would envelop the throne of God. The high priest would enter that place only once a year. But the smoke of the incense was permitted by God to enter twice a day. And the smoke would not just be in the near vicinity, but it would touch the throne of God. The incense offering taught the people of the ways and means of how they would offer acceptable worship and prayer with the assurance that their offering would be permitted to touch the throne. It taught that there was only one way to come before God and have the assurance that this one upon the throne would be delighted to receive it. This is the incense offering. Anything else, any other way, any other means that would be imagined by sinners, this was being very clearly shown to be a trampling, a a blasphemous disregarding of God's holiness. The offering of worship and prayer without dependence upon sacrifice, without dependence upon atonement, 
was clearly taught to be a trampling, this stomping of the feet of defilement in the presence of God who is holy. The whole thing clearly taught the people to say something like this, O Lord, O Lord, not by our works, but by your mercy do we make our approach. O Lord, not by our works, but by your tender compassions. O Lord, by your perfect generosity to provide the payment for our sins, by this, your grace, do we make our humble approach and bring our offering of worship and prayer. It's at the altar of burnt offering that we cry out saying, have mercy upon us and forgive us and cleanse us for we are sinners. And it's from the smoke-enveloped throne that God says, I delight to show mercy to the repentant and the humbled and the poor and needy who ask for my mercy. And of course, the whole ceremony we see here throughout these descriptions, we see that it taught the need of a priestly intercessor. If you weren't a priest, you weren't coming anywhere near these places. It was done for you. Do you remember at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Zacharias is being described as performing his priestly duties? Luke tells us so it was that while Zacharias was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Only Zacharias was in there. Only that priest for that particular day It was him, his number had been drawn, and he alone, everybody else was outside. So we see priestly intercession. There's a scene in the book of Revelation, it's chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. This is what John describes. He says, Then he, that is the Lamb, he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, that is the saints, you know what they did? They sang a song. They have these bowls of incense, which are their prayers. They sang their prayer. They prayed their song. They sing their prayer, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. In other words, you, O Lord, the Lamb of God, it is by your sacrifice. You, O Lamb of God, our Lord, it is by your offering that we, with our worship and our prayers, are brought safely as the redeemed to the throne. Can you hear it in their prayer that that they're singing? Can you hear the humility? We were not the redeemed, but we are the redeemed. We have been brought near to this throne by your blood. By your blood only do we offer this. By your blood only do we bring our bowls of incense where they are here accepted before the throne. You hear the humility in it, can't you? This is the incense offering perfected. Can you hear their thankful astonishment? 
as they sing their prayer before God, that he, would, that he who is so holy would be so merciful. He who is separate, holy, would be so merciful and so generous to such an unworthy people. They were, after all, in need of redemption. This is the incense offering perfected. This is the real incense offering foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. Another snapshot of this comes from Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. John says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He's standing at the heavenly incense altar. He came with his censer and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God and from the angel's hand. There it is. That's the, this is the real incense offering that even true believers all the way back in the days of the Old Covenant, would have been offering from their hearts. Do I have evidence to say that? David in Psalm 141 says this, Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. Let the lifting up of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. Now you're ready for the recipe parable in Luke 18. Put your attention on verse 9. Also he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You know what that is, don't you? That's self-righteousness. Jesus told this parable to people who had decided they were going to engage themselves in the rather unsubmissive approach to salvation. That, you know, that kind of approach that finds sufficiency in self and not from above. Notice that self-righteous people do two things. They trust in themselves. The self-righteous man believes that he has saving merit within his own hands, within his own soul, naturally. Here's what a self-righteous man does. He draws a circle around himself. And, quite uh, convenient for himself, he says that whatever is inside the circle, that is what is holiness. And whatever is outside his little circle, that is what is unholy, that is what is unrighteous. How convenient for the self-righteous man, right? So circle, well, look what's holy. It's what I do, it's how I think, what I'm not doing, this is holiness. He trusts in himself. He lives according to his own standard. The self-righteous man is rich and proud in spirit. He sees himself or he sees his own spiritual condition as being impressively wealthy before God. So wealthy that he believes that he can barter and trade with God. Because after all, he has the spiritual riches. Think of the absurdity of this. The self-righteous man thinks that Uh, salvation is obtained through some kind of cosmic flea market and he approaches God and he's got a gold coin of righteousness and he can barter and trade. You know, give a little righteousness, get a little approval. He trusts in himself. He can obligate God. He can present something from with. He pulls something out of this little circle and he presents it to God and God will 
be impressed and be obligated to give something good back to him. The self-righteous believe they have the works good enough to pay off God. Now think, think about the absurdity of this. This, is the, this has to be the worst kind of witness tampering. The self-righteous believe that they have the, the works that are good enough, good enough to pay God off so that he'll testify that they're righteous. Notice the second thing about self-righteous. They despise others. And those two will always go hand in hand. They'll always go together because if you're not poor in spirit as you evaluate your own spiritual condition, then you're also not going to be meek or gentle in your treatment of others. If you draw a little circle around yourself and this is the standard of holiness, then you're going to despise everybody who is outside that little circle These spiritual standards that the self-righteous hold to, they favor only themselves. They don't favor anybody else. The self-righteous man doesn't think that he needs grace from God. And so therefore, grace isn't in any of his considerations when he thinks of other people. Grace is just not in the equation. Not between himself and God, and it's not in the equation between himself and other people. There's no grace. This is why he despises others. I mean, when he thinks of his relationship with God, he thinks that he needs nothing. He needs nothing that's free from God, and he needs nothing that's merciful. He needs no gift from God. He has no thankfulness in his heart for the doctrine of free grace. He has no thankfulness in his heart for God's merciful patience with him. He doesn't think he needs God's merciful patience with him. And therefore, this man isn't merciful or patient with others because it's just not in his equation. You know who are those who, are be- who best know how to love one another? It's those who are needful, aware, and thankful for God's love to them. Those are the most loving people with one another. They know that God's love that they have, they can never earn. And so they don't treat other people in that way. Lack of love for neighbor is always going to be rooted in a lack of thankfulness for God's grace. Always, always, always. So we see in verse 9, Luke tells us that that's what this parable is, is for. This parable is going to address, it's for this problem. It deals with this kind of a problem. It, especially as this problem bears bitter fruit in worship and prayer. So verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Once upon a time there were two men who went up. They went up to the temple because we do not descend into the common to meet with God the higher elevation of the temple itself, not just the ceremonies, but the actual location of the temple teaches us something of God, does it not? We do not descend into the common. We do not descend into the profane to meet with him who is holy. No, these two men, they physically separated themselves from the lower ordinary business of the city and they went up to meet with him who is high and lifted up in the garments of divine glory him who is separate, him who is sanctified and holy. Both men were the same in this way. 
I think that both men could have engaged with you in a good discussion of the concept of holiness. Both men, I think, could have given you definitions of separateness and would have affirmed to you of God's separateness, that God is holy. I think both men would have given you descriptions of that. And both of these men went up. They went up to the temple to bring each one his offering of prayer. One man is a very religious appearing Pharisee, and the other is a despicable tax collector. This is a parable of two different incense recipes. Let's consider them. First of all, we have the Pharisee, verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. Well, it looks like a little bit of a quarter cup of this and a quarter cup of that. Let's look at the Pharisee's recipe. First of all, we notice that he stands. Standing to pray wouldn't have been all that unusual. Most everybody in that area would have been standing, but this, this is, after all, a Pharisee standing, isn't it? I think this is probably a standing to be seen by other people. Yes, he's gone up to the temple, but for the point of making a presentation of himself only to other people. It is, after all, a Pharisee who's standing. Why do I think that? Well, I think that we need to read this in the context of what Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 5. There Jesus said, When you pray... You shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets so that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. I think this explains the posturing of this Pharisee. His standing is the standing of a hypocrite. He wears a religious mask that makes him appear to have his face turned to God when his face is really just turned to other people, making sure that they see him, making sure that they hear all about his righteousness. He's at the temple, and he wants to make sure that people have their minds focused on his holiness. What do you think so far? of his incense recipe. He's a a mask wearer. He's a hypocrite. He's an actor. What's his motivation? Jesus, Jesus says they do this because they want reward. That's what moves them. Reward, treasure. This Pharisee is posturing not with humility before the Lord, but he's posturing with pride before other people for the point of extracting from them what he wants. And the treasure, the reward he wants, is their approval. That's that's what his heart is set upon. Them thinking well of him. Them being impressed with him. We notice, secondly, here that he prays with himself. This is not a description of volume. This is a description of his heart. I think it's more than just that he prayed quietly. Praise with himself. One commentator says, 
Whom, whom does he address? He says, outwardly he addresses God, for he says, O oh God, but inwardly and actually the man is talking about himself to himself. Moreover, having mentioned God once, he never refers to him again. Notice that, that he begins the prayer, O oh God, and then after that it's a whole lot of me, myself, and I. Praise with himself, to himself, of himself. More evidence of mask wearing, isn't it? More evidence of hypocrisy. It's more evidence of his acting. Think about it. The whole, the whole tabernacle or temple arrangement was, the whole arrangement of it, the ceremonies and the physical uh, arrangement, the whole thing was designed to point the face of the worshiper ultimately to the throne of God through, through sacrifice to God, through cleansing to God, through the light and life of the Holy Spirit to God. But notice the Pharisee, we can detect the, the direction of his, of his face, that is to say the direction of his heart by what he says here in his prayer. The whole thing is, the whole, the whole arrangement where he's at is designed to point his face to the throne of God, but his face, his attention, uh, may we say his hope is no further than himself. You notice that he's, he speaks nothing of God. You notice that in his prayer, he mentions nothing of God's goodness. He mentions nothing of his holiness. He mentions nothing of his grace. He speaks only of his own greatness. What do you suppose, what do you think at this point when you think of his incense recipe? We notice, and with all of this attention to himself, thirdly, with all of this, we notice thirdly that he brings praise of himself. It, it, might, it, it might at first sound like humble praise to God. He does begin by saying, God, I thank you. All right, that, that sounds like a good start, but what follows is a description of the little circle that he's drawn around himself. You see this? God, I thank you for what's inside the circle, and I thank you that I'm not outside the circle that I have conveniently drawn around myself. It's a prayer where he is examining himself, but not in the light of God's holiness, but by comparison with other sinners. It's a mask. He has brought a praise offering, but he's laying it at his own feet. He praises himself in what he is not doing. At least he's convinced himself that he isn't guilty of certain sins. He then continues to praise himself by mentioning what he is doing. Oh, look at this. Oh, what an impressive list of self-sacrifice. Now, maybe I'm the one who's confused at this point. But I seem to remember that one of the main lessons from the incense offering was the concept of substitutionary sacrifice. It wasn't about all the things that Aaron gave up, and it wasn't about all the things that Aaron had taken up. It was about the death of the bull. I, that's what I seem to remember from the incense offering. Here comes the Pharisee bringing his self-sacrifice instead of a dependence upon a substitutionary sacrifice. The death of a worthy offering in place of the worshiper. That, that seems to be what I remember 
from the incense offering. I don't know, maybe I'm the one who's confused. I've been operating for a long time thinking that one of the lessons from Genesis 3 was that the attempt to sew our own fig leaf coverings was deemed by God to be inadequate. That one of the lessons from Genesis 3 was that the attempt to resolve our shame in the presence of a holy God by our own own works was deemed by God to be worthy of only further wrath. I seem to remember that atonement for sin required God providing the covering by means of the sacrifice of another. Because the payment for sin is death. It's not being better than other people. Well, let's reflect on the Pharisees' incense recipe, shall we? What do you think? How, how closely does the Pharisees' offering of worship and prayer reflect or line up with the lessons of the Old Covenant incense offering? The entire incense the entire Old Covenant incense offering was a very clear presentation of the unholiness of people. Their sins deserve to be consumed. They deserve to be consumed because of their sins. Their sins have earned the penalty of death. The whole Old Covenant incense offering, it taught the people of the holiness of God. It taught them the means by which Unholy sinners may have the just penalty of their sins paid. And only after that, through priestly intercession, have their worship and prayers brought before God so that God isn't offended, but rather He's pleased to have that humble poverty of spirit offering touch and and be welcomed at His throne. Incense offering teaches us that God is not like us. He is not our equal. We do not approach Him and deal with Him and trade with Him as if He were just another common man. The incense offering teaches that God must be regarded as holy, absolutely, gloriously separate from the profane, from the common, from defilement. God will not and He cannot tolerate or deem acceptable any thinking of Him or any approach to Him as if He's just any old God. That was the mistake that Nadab and Abihu made. We heard that from earlier from Leviticus 10 that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, and which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And so we have in that moment, we don't have the smoke of incense rising from the holy place, but we have the smoke of human flesh. And I don't know if Aaron saw it, or I don't know if he smelled it, I don't know if it was both. But we can picture Aaron ready with his complaint. He's going to find Moses, and he's going to complain. And I can imagine Moses holding up his hand and saying, Aaron, Aaron, this is exactly what God was talking about. This is exactly the point, Aaron, with all of the details, with all of the instructions, 
with all of the particular guidance for the incense offering. Aaron, this is exactly what the Lord was talking about when the Lord said, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. And Aaron responded in the only right and safe way by keeping his mouth shut. Imagine, imagine with me for a moment, if you will, what would have been the message that would have gone out? What would have been the message that would have been sent out to all the people if God had accepted the profane offering of Nadab and Abihu? What would have been the message communicated to them? It would have been this. Hey, this God, this throne... Approach it in any old way. It don't matter. It don't matter to God because He's just any old God. You know, like all of the other false gods and how you imagine all of those false gods are appeased by your good works and you just come up with stuff. How you're going to serve this God or that God and how you're... That's the message that would have been sent. Sure, come... Yeah, come on in any old way you want. It don't matter because... This is just any old God. No, God said, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Now consider the Pharisee and his incense recipe. The Pharisee is committing the same mistake as Nadab and Abihu, and that is inexcusable. He disregarded and he disrespected the purity of God and God's perfect separation from common defilement as if a man can come before God in the rags of his own fig leaves and think that God will find it sufficient. As if, if I may speak plainly to you, the Pharisee comes before God as if we can take a portion from the dung heap of our own corruptions and that we can smear it on the throne and think God would be pleased with us. The Pharisee took a ceremony of humility and he defiles it with his pride. He takes a ceremony based on substitutionary atonement and he defiles it with trust in his own works. The Pharisee is a blasphemer. Let's take a look at the tax collector, verse 13. The tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's his incense recipe. Tax collector also comes up to the temple to pray. Let's notice the elements of his incense recipe. We notice, first of all, he also stands, but he stands at a distance. I think so as not to be seen or heard by other men. I don't know exactly where they were standing. This is a parable. Maybe we can imagine that the Pharisee was standing where a lot of people would have been gathered, maybe near the door that would have led into the inner court. 
But while he's doing that, the tax collector, he's way back. Maybe he's hiding out somewhere in the outer porches of the temple complex. For the tax collector, why it's as if he... Why it's as if what he wants can't be earned by impressing or by outdoing his neighbor. He's not concerned at all about his neighbor hearing him or seeing him. Look at, look at the interesting posturing of the tax collector. It's as if he wants to be at the temple, but he's uncomfortable in being there. He loves it and he's afraid of it at the same time. <laughs> he, he wants... There's something there that he wants. There's something there that he needs. But he's, he's there trembling in his heart. So he's out in the, in the outer porches somewhere. He's afar off. He dares not do anything that would even remotely seem to be presumptuous. He doesn't want to do anything that would seem to be even remotely presuming or arrogantly assuming that he's going to be just automatically welcomed in that place. Secondly, we notice his, his whole countenance, his whole behavior is, is, is one of shame. Not only his position in the temple area, but also his physical behavior. We notice that he would not so much as raise his eyes, he he, he does not dare put his hand out and move the curtains that separate him from the altars and from the holy places. He dares not put his hand out, not even, not even in his mind. He's not even in his mind's eye trying to pierce the curtains that separate an unholy sinner from him who is holy. No, no, he, he covers his face. He's covering his eyes. He will, not, he will not even raise his eyes to heaven lest he dare unworthily pierce into something that he's not worthy to see. His whole countenance is one of shame. He's very afraid. And yet, there he is. There he is to bring his offering. <clears throat> He needs, he, he needs what those altars provide, but he's afraid to come too close. But there he is. I think we have a desperate man here. Very, very desperate. If he weren't desperate for what those ceremonies represent, then he would have certainly convinced himself not to go there, wouldn't he? Must have been desperate. But there he is. We see the direction of his fists in an outward display, not of self-praise, but of self-condemnation. Look at his prayer. Speaking of his hands, he prays empty-handed. He mentions no comparison of himself to others. He mentions no works he has done. It's almost embarrassing because there he is acting like a beggar. His prayer to God is empty-handed. His prayer to God is covered in guilt. By his, by his eyes, by his hands, by his whole posturing, he's declaring from his heart that he's a sinner. And we notice that in his prayer, he is, he's just simply begging for mercy. 
Oh, that, that's it, isn't it? That's, that's what he came for. That's what he's desperate for. Mercy. That's what he's afraid that he might not get. He's convinced he doesn't deserve it, but there, it, but there he is because he's desperate. That's his incense recipe. Jesus tells us in verse 14 the conclusion of this matter. He says, I tell you this man, that is speaking of the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Why, it's the tax collector who went back down to his house having received the testimony of God that he was the one accounted as righteous in God's sight. Pharisee leaves without any answer from God. Pharisee leaves without God granting him anything. But after all, Pharisee didn't ask for anything from God. God didn't withhold anything from the Pharisee which the Pharisee had asked for. Can you think of anything more tragic than that? The Pharisee didn't ask anything from God, and that's exactly what he received. He received nothing. The Pharisee left the temple with all that he wanted and with all that he thought he needed from God, which was nothing. He doesn't ask for mercy, therefore he went back to his house without it. Let's make some applications to ourselves. We see as a lesson from the Pharisee that people who are full don't feel hungry. Now, I know that's going to come across as a big news flash, but consider people who are full don't feel hungry. If you think that you are full of your own goodness and righteousness, you're certainly not going to be busying yourself asking for another's goodness or righteousness. What's missing in the Pharisee's recipe? I know you'd say there's a whole lot. <laughs> there's a whole lot missing. But certainly there's no confession of his sin. There's no low, humble, beggarly admission that he needs grace. There's no low, humble, beggarly admission that he needs the granting of divine favor. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6 of his prophecy there he is in the presence of God who is holy and he declares himself that he is undone. He's spiritually disintegrated in the presence of him who is holy. But this, this Pharisee, he feels, he feels fully integrated. He feels completely whole. He feels completely sufficient. Thomas Watson says, Till we are poor in spirit, we're not capable of receiving grace. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He's full already. Watson says, if the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. The glass is first emptied before you pour in wine. God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace. None but the poor in spirit are within Christ's commission. Pharisee went up to the temple with his hands full of pebbles, the pebbles of his own assumed, 
presumed sufficient goodness, and he refused to let go of all his little pebbles. And so that's why he left without holding any gold. His hands were full already. And this whole, this whole perspective of himself before God, it killed his praying, so what he does really isn't praying at all. It's, it's an obnoxious offering. He believes he has no need, and so that's why he doesn't plead with God for anything. He believes that he's not beggarly, and that's why he doesn't beg for grace. Proverbs 15.8 says that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Pharisee, and this is why I say it's inexcusable, because the Pharisee, for all of his knowledge of the Scriptures, he's committing the same mistake as Nadab and Abihu. This Pharisee could have probably given you a long lecture on Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10, and all of the this and that that the old rabbis would have said about it. And here he is. Here he is, approaching God on his own terms. He approaches to offer a prayer, but he will not season his incense with humility. He approaches God with his incense, but he thinks he can just skip the altar of sacrifice without first crying out for and receiving the benefits of a sacrifice for his sins. This is an abomination to the Lord. Pharisee ignores how the altar of sacrifice preaches the need for atonement. He will not submit to the truth that he's poor before God. And thus he insists on bringing in an incense in his heart that's of his own self-righteous recipe. And that's why Jesus says that God rejects him. He left the temple without God's saving mercy. Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe he did get his reward. Jesus says they get it. They get their reward. They get the approval of people. But how long do you suppose that lasts? People being like they are... And What good will that be when this Pharisee stands before the Lord in the final day? What about the tax collector's incense recipe? Jesus says it was accepted. His prayer was permitted to touch the throne. His offering of a poor and humble heart it was permitted to touch the throne. But you might say, well, all he did was confess his sin. That's, that's right. You might say, well, all he did was beg for mercy. That's right. You might say, well, but he, he didn't bring a resume. He has no, there's no resume. The, the, the Pharisee has this long resume. The tax collector has nothing. Are you saying that, yes, that's what the Lord is saying? This tax collector didn't bring a resume of what he was doing and what he wasn't doing. This poor sinner simply cries out to God saying, Have mercy upon me, I am a sinner. That's all he said. That's all he could say. And it was pleasing to the Lord. It was pleasing to the Lord. Those simple, humble words, which were a confession of his sins and of his need for God's mercy, you know what those humble words did? They, they rose and they came before the throne of God as a perfumed aroma before God. 
It was exactly the right recipe for acceptable incense. Tax collector lowers his eyes and he beats himself to demonstrate that he had more than earned God's displeasure. He came hungry. He didn't come feeling full. He came very aware of his emptiness and his desperateness, how hungry he is, how desperate he is, how low he is. And he brings these words, he brings this simple prayer of his lowliness, of his desperateness, of his need for mercy. And it was to him that the Lord says, and it is to others like him that the Lord says, come to my table and dine with me and I will dine with you. To those who are full, they don't feel any need to come and dine with the Lord to feed upon those things that the Lord offers because they're full already. How sad, how tragic. But those who are hungry, oh, those who are hungry, they come, those are the ones who will be filled. People who are full don't feel hungry. People who are empty, you know what they'll do? They'll beg for even just a crumb of mercy. Just a crumb would be enough. So dear one, if you have not professed faith in Christ, this encourages you even now, even today, to fly to Him. You, don't, you may be thinking, well, I, I don't have a res- resume. Well, you don't, you don't need a resume. You, you have no resume. Fly to the Lord. Fly to Him. Pray to Him even now as I'm preaching to you. Cry out to Him saying this same thing, admitting that you are a sinner. Oh, Lord, I am a sinner. I, I need your mercy. I need, I need the forgiveness of my sins. I need, a, I need your sacrifice applied for me. I need the shedding of your blood for me. I, I need redemption by your blood. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. You have the promise right here in the Scripture. This is the Lord right now promising to you, that, that giving you this promise that He will hear that prayer, that that's a prayer that He delights to receive, that He delights to receive those who are of a broken and contrite spirit. But you may want to argue with me at this point. You may want to say, but, but my sin is so great. And I would say to you, you being a sinner, you don't even know how great your sin is because your own sin clouds your judgment of your sin. You don't even know. Yes, yes, I agree. Your sin is so great. But the Lord here is saying to you that He's greater than your sin. Don't make the, don't, don't make the Pharisee mistake of coming before the Lord with pride. And it would be pride in your heart saying that your sin is greater than the greatness of the Lord. That your sin is greater than the greatness of His promises of forgiveness. That's, it would sound to be humble at first, but actually that's horrible pride. For you to insist that you're some kind of powerful exception to the gospel promises that Christ has given? I have good news for you. You're not the exception. Your sins are great, yes. 
But there's a Savior who is greater than your sin. You may say, I I have nothing to bring. What do I have to trade with Him that I may have something good from Him? The Lord says that He has everything you need. You may say, but I'm so incomplete in His sight. The Lord says, He will make you complete in Him. You may say, oh, but the wrath, the wrath, oh, the wrath that my sins deserve from a holy God. Jesus here says, His sacrifice, His death is sufficient. You may say that you are so insufficient in and of yourselves. Well, so then, do you really believe that? Are you really convinced that you are so insufficient in and of yourself? Then rejoice because to you it's been granted to know the truth. The promise given to the tax collector is the same promise from the Lord that's being given to you right now. Those who come before him and cry out to him and say, Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me, I'm a sinner. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me, I'm a sinner. It is to that one that the one upon this throne says, you're accepted. I account you as righteous in my sight, not for the sake of any works that you've done, but on account of the accounting of the righteousness of the only begotten Son into your account before me. Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. That's not an abomination before the Lord. That's a delight. The Lord counts that as a delightful offering to him. Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. If you're willing to say that apart from undeserved mercy that you are dead, then this is Christ's precious word to you. Cry out to him and find life. True life where your sins are forgiven. True life where your soul is cleansed. True life where his own righteousness is credited into your account before God. True life where you are preserved forever under the protection of his mercy, even unto that day when you will hold a golden bowl of incense in the presence of God. That despicable, sinful tax collector, he went back down to his house having received the testimony of God, this one is righteous. This one is to be accounted among my redeemed. And that word will just as well be extended to you today. If you come before the Lord with that recipe in your incense offering. Dear saints, perhaps you have drawn near to the heavenly temple many times. Many, many times perhaps you have drawn near. Perhaps beyond count, bringing the same old offering of a broken heart, bringing the same old offering of a contrite spirit. I say to you, bring it again today. Bring it again today, dear saints, confessing your sinfulness, and asking again to be refreshed with His gospel promises. Ask again for the pouring out of His Holy Spirit to be washed, 
to be strengthened for obedience, to be strengthened for righteousness. Dear saints, are you lingering at the outer porches with your eyes cast down? Remember your Savior. Remember His promises. The offering has been made. The curtain has been torn. Come in. Come in with your, with your humble offering. Come in. You have a great high priest who has taken you under his sheltering wing. You have a great high priest who has made the offering. You have a great high priest. It's by his mercy, it's by his righteousness that you are brought safely and acceptably into the holy place with all of his life and his light in your soul. He brings you to feast at the table of friendship and communion with God. Dear saints, come again today. Perhaps many times you have already, beyond count, you've come with your humble offering. Come again to the heavenly temple with your prayer. And you will not be consumed, but you'll be defended. You're at his throne acceptably.